Want to make your own podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easy, then distribute it everywhere, and even earn money. All in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. Here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify, and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like I have an outlet for the creativity and ideas I want to share with the world. I recommend you give it a try. We all have a voice, so share it with the world. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters to get started today. Welcome to the Days of Noah podcast, where we talk all things historical, supernatural, and biblical. Today we're going to jump back into some of the questions we left for this time from last episode regarding Genesis and Noah's Flood. Why would Israel go after other gods? What would have been appealing? I think that's a that's a big piece of the puzzle because so often it's like don't worship other gods and you shall have no other gods and it's like if we thought of these things as just like pieces of stone that doesn't make a whole lot of sense but if there if there were power pow, there was power there and there was appeal there that would you know well there's also the the flesh because um we were just reading as a family the children of Israel started having fornication with the neighboring town, neighboring tribe, you know, and then, and then because they became one with these pagans, they started worshiping their gods. Yep. You know, and obviously God was uh, provoked to jealousy and, you know, then judgment came and Moses had to try to intervene. Right, yeah, and a lot, of, and a lot of them had, um, yeah, ritual sexual stuff. So it's like, oh, that sounds pretty good. Okay, I'll worship your god, you know. So yeah, there was a lot of just enticed, enticed by the flesh. Yep. Well, welcome uh, Don and Luke uh, back for another another week of the podcast. So I thought we would start out with some of the questions that we jotted down from last week. So. Just a rundown of those. We were asking the question, did all flesh perish in the flood? So we were wondering, could there have been any possibility? Does the Bible leave any possibility for some to escape? You know, for any of the giants to escape, any other flesh to escape? Um, And one of the questions that you can ask, because this comes up a lot in different theological um, debates, when the word all is used or every is used in the Bible. And so people will ask, well, does that mean all without exception or all without distinction? So if it's, it's like, if I said, oh, I had all kinds of food at my party. I don't mean every kind of food ever. I mean, I mean, I have a great variety. So it's, there's no distinction of, well, I didn't have this or I did have that. So it's it's different than saying all without exception. I don't mean every food on earth was at my party, right? So that's that's one thing to, to keep in mind. And then the second question was in Genesis 6-3, where God says, uh, my spirit will no longer contend with man, for he is flesh. Um, his days shall be 120 years. So we were asking the question, is that a lifespan change of humankind, or is that a countdown to the flood? And then the third question was, what is meant by the seed of the serpent in Genesis 3.15, where it's that curse against the serpent, um, the seed of the woman, 
will be at enmity with the seed of the serpent. Um, and then a follow-up to that question is, is the serpent in the garden Satan? So that's something, because in the Old Testament, um, the, um, what's it called? Not definite article. The proper noun, I guess, uh, of Satan is not used. It, in the Old Testament, it's always the Satan, the adversary. And I think it's not until the New Testament that it becomes a proper noun. It's used for him. Um, and then the fourth question had to do with uh, Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar uh, with the iron and clay. Uh, and it says, uh, what was something like the ten kings shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. Something like that. So we'll go through those. And then, of course... Uh, Glory Creatures Episode 7 with Brian Forster on the Elongated Skulls and what you guys got out of that. So, should be fun. Alright, well, any before I uh, jump into kind of my notes, um, any thoughts on any of those questions that you guys uh, wanted to bring up or ask? My, my, initial, my initial thought on... on um... On the biblical, I, I guess I would have to go start with just one question at a time because I think that there's probably a lot of other thoughts besides mine. Um, I think uh, I think the all flesh question um, is the one sticking out to me, and um, I don't know the uh, the original language that that was said in. Uh, however, uh, none of the fish uh, or the sea creatures died. Uh, at least that's what it kind of says. Um, I don't know if the mammalian sea creatures uh, had trouble with that, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't think they would. Uh, at least you know whales and things like that. So maybe all flesh meant simply land creatures, and you know, do the giants have the ability to swim that long? I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean that's that's kind of where I'm sitting with it. I mean, I think I think that at least room to to talk about it. It's not like in concrete, all flesh. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And if we go to, so it's Genesis, I think it's, what, chapter 7, 7 through 9, I believe, is, is the account of the flood. God says, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then later he says... I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. <clears throat> so, yeah, breath of life. I was going to say perhaps uh, everything that has breath, and like maybe there's a distinction of sea life. That makes me think, is it possible that Noah could have brought sea life into the ark, that there might have been... You know, you know how boats have like the—I don't know what they're called—but where the where the water flows like in and out, it's able to move pass through the ship, right? What if there was a what if there was a part of the ark that he actually could have, or God could have drawn the sea creatures up into the ark in some some compartment that would have kept kept water there. But I don't understand why the that there would be the need for that. Um, only only to distinct if all life, because well, that's what we're going to get into is just just how explicit this part of the Bible is about every like it's so. We're going to see it so redundantly said that everything all that it's like okay, it seems complete. But go ahead, Luke. Yeah, I know we're, we're dissecting the word all, and we probably need a, a, maybe the Hebrew language uh, a word for that. But if you're just thinking in very simple terms, if the, the plague or the judgment is water, like Don said, I mean, sea life, I mean, they're not going to be snuffed out by a deluge of water. They're going to thrive in it. They're going to, it's going to give them more places to swim. Now, if they happen to be caught over land when the water recedes, recedes 
yeah, that's going to kill off some some fish and mammals that are in the water. But um, that would be the only ones that I would see perishing. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And actually, I just we just answered our own question here as we get to the the section that I was going to read. So it's funny because like, um, wife, my wife and daughter will will accuse me of repeating myself a lot. And I'm like, no, I'm just saying it a different way. <laughs> and uh, so here, so here's God repeating himself, okay? Um, so this is in verse 21. I'm sorry, I don't have the chapter. I think it's chapter 8 of Genesis. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. So I I think that does leave room for what you guys are saying, that he's making clear it's about... Dry ground, uh, or dry land, it says in verse 22. And then and then just the description of birds, livestock, beasts, swarming creatures, that sort of thing. So yeah, I think it I think that's fair to say that it uh that he didn't have to bring <laughs> you know, sea turtles and uh and whales and all sorts of things into the ark. One interesting thing about the ark, uh our family took a trip um down to that actual ark that was built um, under that, uh, the Ken Ham Foundation. I can't remember the name of it right now. Yeah, the Answers in Genesis yeah. or Creation Museum yes, or something. and yeah. uh, the Creation Museum is unbelievable. And when I say unbelievable, you're just going through this thing and you're like, whoa. And when you go through the, uh, the ark itself, um, they show, um, you know, how you were talking about like flowing water. Um, they showed, they showed actual, like, you know, obviously some of it was taken with, you know, um, hypothesis, but they showed flowing water through this arc. They showed, you know, different as the different levels, the, you know, how the, how the waste products are, are expelled. They even showed like velociraptor type animals in the, in the cages and uh, just it was just it was a fantastic experience. I'd recommend you know taking the family there sometime. Yeah, that sounds great. Is that Tennessee or Kentucky or Georgia? It's not that far away. It's um, so we went down to uh, yeah, family vacation down in uh, Cedar Point, and during that vacation we we hit that museum. So Cedar Point is like uh, like a big amusement park uh, down in Indiana, or maybe it's in. Ohio, I can't remember, but it's it's down there and it's not too far away really for for vacation. So Well, good. I I mean, I feel like I think that one is is pretty well satisfied that question um that it was it was so explicit in in how it's said in Genesis there. And again, you know, our contention is that this was God dealing with the the wickedness and the violence which was accompanied with these hybrid creatures uh, from the sin of the Watchers. So, yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense that, uh, that, that, that these things... I mean, there's some fantastical theories in, in, like, Jewish Targums that say, you know, some of the giants hitched a ride on the Ark and survived. You guys ever heard that one? So, could, yeah. could be, though. I mean, who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, well, let's move on from there. So, and this, you know, this next one is, I was thinking about it this morning, whether it's a 120-year lifespan that was changed because people, man, mankind lived a lot longer, or it's a 120-year countdown to the flood, there's really not a whole lot of, like, ramification for which side you fall on. Like, I don't think it's a, it's not like a, a big theological issue, but it's good practice for us to interpret the word properly. So, uh, so some of the things I found on why people think it is a lifespan change is we do see 
the lifespan of um, some of Noah's lineage and so on, they do seem to decrease. Um, and and then another another point that I've heard brought up is um, it says that the flood came when Noah was like 600 years old. I don't know if it was exactly 600. Uh, um, I could look at the verse, but let's just say 600. And then they go back in scripture and they're like, okay, this verse says Noah had his three sons. And they're kind of creating a timeline of uh, when those sons were born and when the, when the flood happened. And they're going, okay, it's actually only 98 years. So there's no way it was 120 years. Well, here's what I find interesting about that. It's Genesis 6-3. And again, this is right in the middle of what we're talking about when the sons of God saw their daughters of men were attractive and they took wives as they chose. And then in verse 3, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And then goes right on to say, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and bore children to them, these were the mighty men of old, men of renown. So, I think it is in error, in my opinion, to say that this verse where God is saying, My spirit shall not abide in man, his days shall be 120 years. I don't think we have any indication of when he said that chronologically. And who he was saying that to specifically. Because there's nothing in this first part of Genesis 6 that shows, hey, he's talking to Noah, Noah is this age, and so on. So I think people are kind of reading into that and saying, oh, he was, later it says he was 600 when the, when the flood came. And then they're just assuming, you know, count back 120 years, and they're like, oh, he didn't even have his sons yet. Well, there's nothing in... in 6-3 that says uh, when he made this pronouncement chronologically. What do you guys think on that? I think the chronological uh, portions of the Bible, I think, are very difficult to um, to figure out because there's been a lot of um, archaeology. And in fact, from the podcast that I listened to, um, The Blurry Creatures, talks about a lot of archaeology that is just not that's off limits to people to study. And um, I think that the best way to get archaeology to, uh, I think the archaeology, if you will, is going to be what gives us those timelines. Um, I don't understand why the book of Job is where it is, if that chronologically was one of the first books. And so I guess I'm, I'm a little bit not understanding 100% about what or how that's figured out anyway. You know, I think there's a certain there's a certain flow to it, and um, so it doesn't necessarily have to be in the order it was written or in the order it actually happened in history. It's more, yeah, it's more the flow of it, I guess. Is that's a good question? We should look into like <laughs> how how was uh, the Old Testament books assembled, in what order, and and why did they put them in in that order? Because yeah, some things don't always you know go one thing to the next. You know, we even have things in, what, like Isaiah and Psalms that talk about creation. So we get pictures into creation in these much, much later books of the, of the Bible. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm of the opinion that it's uh, 120 years to the flood, that that's totally legitimate. And especially because um, in, let's see if I have the verse here, in Psalm 90.10... It should be David talking, I think. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. And I think that's that's pretty consistent over history, depending on, you know, um, technology and, and, and hygiene and, and all those things, right? That generally speaking, yeah, about 80-year lifespan is pretty consistent for, for humans. So, and then if 120 was was like set in stone. Well, people today, there are rare accounts of living to 122, 123. So 
I think it could fit, but I think it's more the the countdown to the to the flood. All right, moving on. What is meant by the seed of the serpent? So this one I got to dig into a little bit more, but um, I did find a few things, and so the follow up to that I had is how do we know the serpent in the garden is is Satan? In Ezekiel twenty eight twelve to fifteen. Um, so this is, I think, pretty well regarded as talking about about uh, Satan uh, falling. Um, you were thus says the Lord God: You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone is your covering. And list a bunch of stones. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. And one distinction too, when we think of iniquity, we usually think of it as the same as sin or transgression of the law but um i forget where i uh, where i heard this but the distinction with iniquity is more like a corruption or a perversion and so um not that that's you know too much different than sin but so yeah it's talking about this anointed cherub um and just going on and on about how special he was and I think that's that's pretty well established that um, that Lucifer or Satan, if they are one and the same, was like next to God the most amazing being and the most amazing of a created being. I'll put it that way. So, and it's saying that they were in Eden. So I think, and then and then again, uh, we can go to Revelation twelve nine, and the great da- dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan. So I think there's some agreement there with scholars and theologians that that's referencing the Satan in the garden. Is it possible? I mean, and this just kind of came to me. It's not from any great research, but is it possible that the initial iniquity or the initial sin was when the serpent? did that in the garden because obviously satan would have the ability or lucifer at that point the uh the morning star i believe is another name for him um would probably have the ability to run around the garden and do whatever he wanted you know be he could be a snake he could be whatever he wanted and i'm just wondering if that wasn't the first moment where he's like look where it came into satan's um heart that uh he was so beautiful and he could do whatever he wanted and then at that point decided to corrupt uh eve or adam and eve i think that's very possible um because you know i've been looking into this a good deal as far as was it an actual serpent now uh, cherubim or seraphim in particular are there's descriptions that they are serpent-like or dragon-like in their appearance. Um, so Adam and Eve would not have been surprised at a talking snake. And yeah, he was probably in closer to a form they would have recognized. They probably would have seen him in the garden if he was, you know, <clears throat> meant to stay there and, and guard it or protect it or be part of it. Yeah, and I almost imagine him like not not in like a like a, a creepy kind of way. Hey, did God really say? But but more like, you know, just just kind of in a casual way, right? Because they were probably familiar with him being there. So yeah, I think that's very possible. Well, how much how much of the serpent being a snake comes from artwork? You know, from the Renaissance also. Yeah, so that's that's a whole can of worms as far as just. Biblical tradition, Catholicism in large part, and medieval thinking, where we have kind of carried over a lot of ideas that we associate with 
the Bible, Christianity, and history that aren't even in the Bible. And and to that point, you know, we often will have heard or talk about, you know, Satan and his fallen angels. Well, he's got a third of them. And that's in Revelation is the only place the Bible says anything about any other fallen angels besides Genesis 6 with the watchers and sinning with human women. But as far as rebelling angels with Satan, the only possible indication in the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, is in Revelation. And according to what uh, Michael Heiser was talking about, that verse in Revelation about a third of the stars being swept by the tail of the dragon, and stars are often um, used in likeness of angels, uh, that was that happened at the time of Christ on earth. So this was not some ancient event of rebellion and, you know, Lucifer going, all right, come on, guys, you know, we can we can do things better on our own. So I don't know if we have any biblical basis, in my opinion, to say that there are all these other angels that fell way back when. Maybe Maybe it was at the time of Christ that rebellion took place. I, I, I think, again, on timing i think that it's very difficult to to tell so i'm not i'm not thinking that that's way out there either and maybe that's what sparked uh the time that christ was going to come down um i don't know how much demon possession was talked about in in the old testament uh, but it sure picks up during the new testament and maybe that happened i mean that it's i think that it could have happened around the time of christ yeah, yeah. Um, I think let's let's jot that down as something to look into, um, that passage in Revelation, and was it... Let's see if we can nail down if it... If we agree with Michael Heiser that uh, that was something that... An event that took place around the time of, of Jesus' birth or his life on earth. You mentioned uh, demon possession. I think that was known in the Old Testament... Although what I've what I've heard people say is that it was very new for someone to come along and be able to deal with it like like Jesus did. Like being able to cast out was something very new. Just because you brought it up, I just want to say too, um one of the distinctions that that we often make when we're talking about the origin of demons is that there's something different about them compared to uh, angels, that they're actually thought of, and uh, in the book of Enoch it's more explicit, that they're actually the disembodied spirits spirits, sorry, of the hybrid giants. The spirits that they, that they left behind are demons. And so any angelic being is, is something else that already has a body, whereas the demons are disembodied, and that's why they're always needing to inhabit a body. Um, I don't know, Don, if you heard, uh, it was a few uh, episodes ago that we talked about um, the Strong's word for unclean spirit. No? Okay. That that one is, is pretty eye-opening. So, you know, Jesus uses that term. That term's used a lot in the, in the in his time on earth. You know, so-and-so has an unclean spirit. What's interesting is, um, I don't have it in front of me, but the Strong's word for that, the definition, talks about impure and mixed, as in a mixture. What's fascinating about that is it does seem to line up pretty well with this idea that angelic and human DNA got together and created these giants, the Nephilim. And their disembodied spirits, when they died, left behind demons. And they're called unclean spirits, which means mixture. And that's exactly what it is. It's a mixture of of these two creatures that are not meant to come together. And it's similar to, I think it ties into... um, to Jude and Peter, where it's talking about the angels that sinned. Um, I think it's in Jude where 
it actually might even be in both passages where they relate the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah as going after strange, as in foreign, flesh. And so one of the thoughts of the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah was not the necessarily the the sexual sin that we think of like maybe you know homosexuality or something okay that god is god is dealing with it that's why he destroyed those cities but it actually might be because they were pursuing because you remember those two angels that came in to the city and lot had to protect them that it was actually them trying to do the same kinds of things that the angels of genesis 6 were doing Right, so that in the Genesis six, you had the angels pursuing humans, and in this case, in Sodom, you had men pursuing angels. So it's interesting that Jude and Peter tie those two events together and the judgments of them them together as going after strange flesh. And again, I think that fits with this mixture idea of unclean spirits. When you were saying that, I, I thought of something. So you think of the judgments that God did on uh, the people of his people, the Hebrew people, the people of Israel, um, when they, and I gave reference to that before Don got here in numbers where they created fornication, had, had, had sex with these Moabite women then started worshiping their gods. And then this severe judgment. Yes, God's commandment says you should worship me and me only. So he's a jealous God. But is it possible that some of these nations, you know, because this kind of is our subject, um, were strange, fle- strange flesh. They were a mixture. And by the Israelites having sex with them, becoming one with them, they were polluting themselves. And God, God needed to uh, to to, to uh, have judgment on that because of, of of the the DNA problem, the offspring problem. Plus, there was the I don't know. It it, it seemed like just as he was, I don't know. It, it seems like there's a parallel, in my opinion. Yeah. No, I think that's a good point. I think there's certain lines in the sand that God has where where he steps in, you know, he allows a certain degree of sin in the world. And when it comes to, you know, really serious stuff like corrupting our DNA, you know, or the line of Messiah for that matter, you know, the most important um, prophecy to be fulfilled. Yeah, I think there's times where he steps in and says, nope, I'm taking care of this. And that, that may, yeah, that may point to... You know, having having certain tribes that were infiltrated by hybrid beings along with their wickedness. I think it's a combination of the two where it's 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 their their violence and their sin and their wickedness and also their corrupt DNA that God steps in. And it's interesting that there's a, I think of a scripture where um, it's describing and I think it was dealing with the tribes that were in the promised land that their iniquity needed to get to a certain level before God was going to do something. So it was like, it's almost like because he's a a just God and he, you know, there's, there's these, these laws that he understands that, that Lucifer understands and he allows certain things to just get to a certain point and then he'll render judgment. And it's almost, it's almost like you're, you're hanging yourself with your own, you know, because of what you did. And he's allowing the evidence to pile up, you know, kind of like a a cop might, uh, in a sting operation, a st- yeah, yeah, they'd they'd be observing. They're observing. They're gathering the facts. They're observing all this, all these crimes taking place, and then once they have, yeah, then they can process. I was going to say they don't want to take down the the low level uh, pushers on the street. They want to get the kingpins, right? So I don't know. It's yeah, kind of it, interesting how how the Lord handles um, certain things, and and 
he seems to be swift in some places and and very merciful and gracious at at other times and obviously we're in a in a different dispensation since we're after christ but um we're kind of in that same mode right now we're in the dispensation of grace so the evidence is piling up for several thousands of years so it's, yeah it's, and it's, it's and it's out of his it's out of his um his long suffering and bearing with us and wanting all to come to repentance and faith that that he does that it's uh genesis 15:16 in the fourth generation of your descendants will come back here for the sin of the amorites has not yet reached its full measure so yeah i think we do see that that principle of or even in in talking about revelation you know the these are the signs of the the coming of the the son of man again um you know the birth pangs um yeah there's a there's a fullness to sin that that he kind of lets run its run its course in many cases. It it seems that um, when when you talk about the sin of the Amorites has not yet um, uh, come up, and to tie that in for tie that into what you're talking about with um, you know police work and, and collecting evidence, and um, kind of compared with the way that he handles uh, Israel, it's completely different because. He allows that evidence to pile up upon the um, Amorites that are not, quote unquote, his children, but yet Israel is his children and he will intervene a lot quicker um, in in them, just like a parent would with their child versus a parent watching the kid across the block. And that's just something that came to my mind. Don, you hit it on the head. And I think there's a scripture in the New Testament that uh apostle paul uses to describe chastisement or discipline that the lord disciplines those that are his so if you're not receiving this correction this discipline this you know are you part of the family you know and i've also heard it like this you know if you're already on your path on the path to uh where you're away from god um, is the devil really going to mess with you? No, because he just wants you to keep doing what you're doing. But if you're a threat to the king, to his kingdom, because you're you're sharing the gospel, you're you're representing Christ well. You know the enemy's against you, and then there's times that the the Lord is going to allow certain things, or He'll intervene in certain cases because, as a good parent, He's trying to mold your character more and more into the image of His Son. So it's it, it's interesting dynamic how um, how things take place, and I know people in the world really question when they see things like a nine eleven or certain tragedies and stuff like that. Um, I just saw a news report of two young twenty or twenty one year olds got a head on head on collision just the other day, um, and both of them died. You know how would God allow that type of stuff. I think a lot of it has to do with, especially in this dispensation, God being observing everything. And I think it, I think because we have dominion here, he doesn't intervene like he did in the Old Testament. Um, he will. It's, it's kind of like the Lord's Prayer. You know, it's our job to petition. It's our job to, to pull down his will from heaven to be down here on earth. So I think we have a lot more authority than, um, than we realize. And I think we give God more credit than he really deserves because I feel like his hand is more lifted and he's really not pulling the string, the strings like people think he is. Yeah, no, that's that's an that's an excellent observation, and I think that's bore out of Scripture. Jesus coming into certain towns and saying, marveling at their lack of faith, and the Bible records, and he did not or could not uh, do many miracles because of their lack of faith. There's this idea that I've had for a while that that God is no less uh, omnipotent, but yet he is incredibly self-limiting. So he creates certain rules for how he's going to govern 
the universe and the and interaction with people. And it really does seem by experience and the Bible that he um that that there is a measure that he will not cross certain bounds of our free will and it takes faith and prayers for him to act in certain ways in most cases right not all the time but you know he's going to intervene when he needs to but yeah i think there's that principle that you know i like how uh, ray comfort puts it when it comes to salvation he says uh, shepherds don't have sheep sheep have sheep so the the principle of increase in the kingdom of God is 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 us living out and telling one another about God's truth. It's not you know God showing up in the heavens every you know every, once a year and going okay all you atheists that didn't believe last year here I am you know give you another shot you know but yeah there's a lot go ahead Don I know you know where I'm going um, <laughs> so I. Uh... Uh, I would have to respectfully disagree with um, God pulling back and allowing his rules to just go. Now, part of that, I believe, is true. I think that he has created rules for us to uh, live by, as in gravity and, you know, the sciences that we're allowed to tinker with at this point. Um, I do, if if there's ever a question of uh, the sovereignty of God and his constant being in everything look at driving a car with all the people and all of the distractions we should we should be dying like i mean everybody should be dying you know 15 seconds after they get on the road especially in a in a two-way uh street because obviously with all these i guess the road i'm going down is i believe that god um god is in control of every cell in your body and every every piece of dust that's flying through the air. And the way I look at it is, you know, if you go way out to Jupiter, um, the molecules and the gases he's, he's running right now as well. Um, and that's, right. that's nothing for an infinite God. And that's, those are, no, totally. He, he absolutely could. And, um, and I think that that is an excellent discussion in and of itself is how deterministic is God. And I know John Piper takes that view that, that yeah, right down to the very molecules and the atomic function of a cell, you know, that God is orchestrating. Um, but I, and and let's let's table that for another time because that that is an excellent um, topic to really delve into and explore. But I'll say I'll say one point on on sovereignty. So just as you know, we're you know the the husband or father is supposed to be like the head of the household, the leader of our house, right? Or you can just say equal with you know husband and wife are the leaders. Um, we have sovereignty over our household, right? Or just like a, a president has sovereignty over um, his citizens. But there there's a degree of free will there, and then there's also not determining what every citizen or every child in a household does. So there's, I, I there's the, your household yeah. then because I don't feel very sovereign here. And uh, <laughs> will is actually tapped uh, today even. Uh, so pretty rampant. Well, there's certain things that I had better be doing. Um, oh, right, right. Yeah. And it's almost, uh, yeah, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Well, yeah, so I'm just trying to create the distinction that we can agree that God is sovereign, but what the definition of that means is very different for different people. The more Reformed the theology is that it's, and there's spectrums of, of even in Reformed circles, but of of it being more deterministic on, on the level of even every cell, on the level of even uh, causing sin, causing the death of a child or, or you know, rape or all these awful things in the world as as uh john piper would even would even say and then there's a lesser form of that which is compatibilism where god's no less deterministic but he's compatible with with our our free will but then he orchestrates us to make the decisions he wants but i think that god is no less sovereign i'll put it this way uh one way to think of 
God in his sovereignty, how deterministic he is or not, is if you think of him like a master chess player, right? No, no uh, AI or, or chess master is ever going to beat him at chess if we sat down and played him. What you have to ask is, does God need to play both sides of the board in order to win? In other words, does he have to uh, manipulate in a robotic way um, his creation in order to get the outcome he needs? And I say no. He's, he's so far above our level and the angel's level that he's able to play just his side and let the other side do whatever it's going to do. Um, and he may choose to intervene. I'm not saying he doesn't. I'm not saying he just lets, you know, turns the clock, winds up the earth and lets things go. I'm not saying that. But he doesn't have to play both sides of the chessboard in order to win. And, and, and what's interesting is when you think about this, which is a more sovereign God? the one that has to play both sides of the board, that has to orchestrate every molecule of, of gas on Jupiter in order to make it do what it does, or the one, that, the one that can be over it and actually allow free will, and he still accomplishes the things he needs to accomplish. To me, that is a God that's actually greater than the one that needs things locked in place in every molecule in order for him to accomplish what he needs. That's, yep, that, that's a, that's a good argument. And I think that that's something that we should probably dive into in greater detail. I would uh, definitely need to research that before I jumped into a discussion like that. So. Nope, no problem. I've, I've been down that road quite a, quite a bit as, as you know, and, and I think, yeah, it's only going to sharpen us. So. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, and I think uh, one thing, too, I wanted to point out, too, is um, just kind of the reason for the flood uh, having to do with um, the corruption of all flesh, not just being a moral issue. Because one of the reasons, and perhaps the, the main reason, that God uh, saw that Noah was righteous and chose him to uh, build the ark uh, with him and save him and his family was not just his faith in God, which again that's that's righteousness in the Old Testament as well as as it is in the New Testament as well. But it was also his genetic uh, intactness, his his genetic purity, and we can see that in Genesis seven. The Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. And then prior to that, in, in, uh, in Genesis 6-9, it says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. And if you look at the Strong's Concordance reference for the word perfect, it is Strong's 8549, uh, and the word is tamim or, or tamid, and it means complete, whole, entire, sound, uh, healthful, wholesome, unimpaired, innocent, having integrity. And what's, uh, what's really fascinating is that that same word is used in uh, Exodus 12.5 where God is instructing um, how to gather a lamb for a sacrifice as a, as a precedent for you know, the spotless lamb of, of his son. And it says, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. So the same phrase there about being without blemish is exactly the same word as him being perfect in his generations. So just as we can conclude easily that um, a goat or a sheep doesn't have any moral perfection or imperfection, 
in using this word for being spotless or without blemish. The same way we can say that God used that word for Noah. Um, So it does not connote a moral perfection because an animal couldn't have a moral perfection and that word was used. So it's more about the physical integrity of Noah. So that's just kind of one piece of the puzzle as far as uh, what God was trying to deal with with the flood and the damage that the the Nephilim uh, had done as a result of the sin of the Watchers. One other note I wanted to touch on quick is, uh, as we were talking about the serpent in the garden, um, if you guys have ever heard this uh, serpent seed theory, which is that um, literally Satan um, procreated with Eve and had Cain, and that it is literally the the offspring of Satan is the line of Cain. <clears throat> and um, there's kind of a convoluted uh, path that, that people take biblically and outside of the Bible that, um, that they get there. Um, but if you haven't looked into that, it's, it's kind of strange, and I, I don't think it has merit personally, um, but it's worth at least understanding where that view comes from and why. Um, so we can kind of save that for another time, but I'll just say like in Genesis where it says that, um, Adam knew his wife and bore a son and called him Cain. Like it's just an order of event all in one sentence, very clear that Cain came from Adam and Eve, um, and there's a, no, there's a number of other things that we could go into for, for how that is, is kind of um, debunked. But uh, an interesting theory to, to look into nonetheless. All right. Well, I think we'll wrap up for this week. Thanks again, guys. And uh, we'll look forward to next week. We didn't get into uh, Brian Forrester episode of Glory Creatures and talking about the elongated skulls. We're going to save that for next time. And uh, thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Days of Noah. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you're on. And until next time... Help join us in the journey of discovering biblical and historical and supernatural truth as we try to uncover the past, connect it to the present, and discern the future.